ASIP, the voice of interventional pain management. The ASIP podcast is sponsored by Medtronic, your partner in personalized pain solutions for patients with musculoskeletal pain, cancer pain, severe spasticity, or chronic pain. To learn more about Medtronic solutions, call 888-638-7627 or visit back.com. The ASIP podcast is also sponsored by Boston Scientific. In a registry of 800 patients, 72% of patients used multiple waveforms when given the option. Boston Scientific's Precision Spectra SCS system offers customized pain relief, delivering multiple waveforms to a precise neural target. You want options? Boston Scientific delivers. Hello and welcome to the October 2016 edition of the ASIP podcast. This is Tom Pergy of the ASIP staff. And on this podcast, we'll learn what medical scribes are and what they do. In the news segment, we'll have stories about which NSAIDs have the greatest cardiac risk, acetaminophen's effect on fetal neurodevelopment, a new prophylactic treatment for migraine, and much more. And then we'll wrap things up with a study about whether women find beards attractive. Now, on on last month's podcast, I told you about the recent lobbying trip that ASIP leaders and members made to Washington. Well, that trip has paid off. The MACRA-MIPS final rule has been published, and ASIP's recommendation of a 90-day reporting period rather than a full year was accepted. More details about this and other aspects of the final rule are on our website, which is ASIP, A-S-I-P-P, dot O-R-G. Now, this is not the first time that ASIP's advocacy has produced benefits for our members. Advocacy actually works. It really does. And that's why we urge all members to contribute to our political action committee. It's so important to help assure future advocacy successes. You can easily contribute online. We have a uh, website set up for that. It is asippac.org. So it's asippac.org. And please notice that it has those three P's in a row. So asippac.org. Just go there and make a contribution. The ASIP podcast is sponsored in part by St. Jude Medical, makers of spinal cord stimulation, and radiofrequency therapy products. Visit them at professional.sjm.com. And by Stimwave, maker of the Freedom Spinal Cord Stimulation System. Find out more about the Freedom Spinal Cord System at www.stimwave.com. Well, do you employ a medical scribe? Do you even know what a medical scribe is? Well, we're going to find out next when I talk to Dr. Jared Pello of iScribes, right here on the ASIP Podcast. Welcome back to the ASIP Podcast. This is Tom Priggy. And have you ever heard of a medical scribe? 
Well, if you have, but you're not sure exactly what that is, we're going to find out right now here on the interview portion of the podcast. I have with me via Skype, Dr. Jared Pello. Uh, Dr. Pello is a physician and the owner of iScribes of Durham, North Carolina. Dr. Pello, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me, Tom. Uh we are recording this in the middle of October, and you are in North Carolina. Just want to find out to, how did you do with the big hurricane that just came through, Hurricane Matthew? You know, uh, Durham is not bad. About an hour south, Fayetteville had a lot of flooding. We had a lot of rain, you know, six inches in a day, but uh, Durham did okay. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. So, so no uh, permanent damage for you folks there. No, I mean, a few trees down here and there, but nothing terrible. All right. Well, let's start with the most general question that there is, and then we'll drill on down to specifics. What exactly is a medical scribe? Yeah. uh, You know, medical scribes have been around for about 20, 30 years, mostly in the emergency department, and they've really kind of exploded since the High Tech Act and the Affordable Care Act and everybody had to move to electronic medical records. So a medical scribe is somebody who listens to a doctor and patient talk and then translates that into a coherent patient note and really does the documentation that a doctor would do. Um, You know, lots of times people get medical scribes confused with transcriptionists, but they're nothing alike in that a transcriptionist has to hear word for word what a doctor wants in their medical note. And a medical scribe is trained to a higher level where they're able to listen to a doctor and a patient communicate and then translate that and write it just like a doctor would and kind of do all that work for the doctor. Now, you are a physician yourself. Tell us about your experiences with medical scribes and and how you even came about to uh, go into business uh, as the owner of iScribes. Yeah, you know, my experience was really fortuitous in that I went to the University of Virginia for my residency, and in 2008, they started a medical scribe program for residents. So my residency was probably a little bit more cush than most people's because I had a medical scribe at least during my daytime shifts. They didn't scribe at night, but during my daytime shifts, I had a scribe that would go, you know, room to room. These are usually pre-med students and they would follow me from room to room and uh, do my notes. And emergency medicine is interesting because they have a three-year track and a four-year track. So some programs are three and some are four. And the University of Virginia sold it as, you know, you'll see more patients in three years than if you went to another program where you did not have a medical scribe and you went for four years. And I just fell in love with having somebody else do my busy work, all that paperwork, and really being able to do what I went to medical school for and see patients. Um, yeah, go, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah, so when I, when I finally finished residency and was ready to go look for a job, I wouldn't even interview if they didn't have a medical scribe program. And in emergency medicine, they're fairly common. You know, about 40% of emergency medicine doctors use scribes. So really pretty high. Um, And so got my first job in Lynchburg, Virginia. Had a medical scribe, it was great. And after a couple of years of practice, they asked me to be medical director of a smaller hospital in Farmville, Virginia. 
and started practicing down there and I didn't have medical scribes and it drove me crazy. And, um, that really was the impetus to starting ice scribes. I was just kind of driven crazy by the fact that I couldn't have medical scribe because of the location, because of where I was at. And so ice scribes was, is a virtual medical scribe company. And so really trying to solve that problem. How can you have a scribe anywhere at any time? All right. You said that the scribes that you had used before were medical students, but, uh, not everybody has access to med- medical school students. So what type of training does a medical scribe go through uh, if they want to make this their career, their profession? Yeah, so um, you're exactly right. Not everybody has access to you know medical students or pre-medical students. And so, you know, there's different ways to have a medical scribe. There's kind of the homegrown medical scribe programs which um, are a lot of work. Um, You know, some practices will hire one or two medical scribes and then they really learn on the job with the doctor. And there's no official certification for scribing yet. I imagine that's going to come because the industry is growing so fast. But the reason there's no official certification is because in the end, at the end of the day, the doctor is the one that signs the note and takes full responsibility for the note. Um, and so typically you've got your homegrown uh, medical scribe programs and there are some textbooks out there you can purchase and you can have somebody read through it and then you kind of coach them and teach them how to write a note. And I would say that it, if you're going to do that, it's going to take you two or three months to teach somebody how to write a good note for you. And the problem with that is that they turn over so frequently, you know, especially pre-medical students, they're going to be with you a year or two, and then you're going to find yourself training somebody else for two or three months. Um, and then there are scribe services, the biggest of which is called Scribe America. They have, I believe, over 10,000 medical scribes across the U.S. now. And uh, they will come in and they will recruit for you. They will train for you and they will schedule for you uh, medical scribes. And the big difference there is the cost difference. If you train your own scribe and you uh, are paying your own scribe, you're usually going to pay about $14 or $15 an hour. And if you use somebody like Scribe America, you're going to pay more like $25 to $30 an hour. Now, you um, said that – you, well, yeah. let, let's get to, to what iScribes does because yeah. you said that you're a virtual scribe company. So what exactly does that mean? Yeah, so what, uh, what we do is we record a doctor and a patient talking for their whole visit. And so we use an iPhone app and we use a smartwatch. And basically the doctor logs into the app at the start of the day, pushes one big button that says start. They put their phone in their pocket so the microphone is up. So if you're wearing a white coat, you put it in your breast pocket. If you want to, you clip it on your hip pocket or you clip it on your hip or you put it on the table. Um, And then you have a smartwatch that is going to control the app the rest of the day. So you don't ever have to take your phone out of your pocket again. Hit start on your watch. You tell us who you're going to see. So if you want to see, you know, Jane Smith for chronic back pain, you tell us that before you walk in the room. Um, and then you just record yourself talking to the patient, just like you would talk to any patient and you don't have to worry about the documentation. And really what we ask the doctors to do 
is be good doctors, you know, tell the patient exactly what you're thinking, what you're seeing, what your assessment is, what your plan is. And if they, if the doctor does all those things for us, when they leave the room and they hit stop, we have all the information we need to write a, write a note. Um, as soon as they hit stop, that recording goes up to our HIPAA compliant cloud. And then we have medical scribes across the U.S. who access these recordings for us and then put them directly in the doctor's electronic medical record. So for a, Go ahead. So for a doctor, it's really just push a button, record, push a button, stop, and then check on your note later. Now, a few minutes ago, you said that uh, ultimately the doctor has to sign off on whatever is in the medical record, but it seems as though the physician is, is kind of giving up a certain amount of control to the medical scribe because the scribe is interpreting what he or she hears the physician saying. Am I correct or am I off track here? No, you're, you're exactly right. And that's where the trust and the quality has to be top notch, right? You're not going to feel comfortable giving up that control if you don't have that really great quality on the other end. And, and so that's, you're exactly right. You give up that control and then you really have to have trust that that person is going to do a great job. Otherwise you're going to spend more time correcting their note than it would have taken you to write it in the first place. And what about, there are so many different, uh, EMRs, electronic medical records out there. Uh, how, how does your company deal with that let's say that you have one client that is using the xyz uh emr and somebody else is using the abc emr how, how do you how do you resolve that with all the different ones that are out there so the way that we've tackled that is we made a conscious decision when we started not to integrate directly with the emr so we ask for a remote seat just like if a doctor wants to do charting from home uh, we ask for a remote seat and then we log into the EMR remotely and do all the documentation. And so really all we have to do is learn how to use each EMR. In most EMRs, I would say 95, 90, 96% of EMRs have good remote access. Not 100%. We've run into one or two EMRs that, you know, we really can't do the work just because the remote access isn't there yet. Um, but that's how we do it. How do patients feel about medical scribes, uh, especially if one is there in person? Uh, how do they feel about having a non-provider, so to speak, in the room with the doctor? You know, I think uh, it depends a lot on the doctor. So if you walk in the room and you just start talking with the patient and you ignore the scribe, the patient's going to be wondering the whole time, like, who is this person that's like listening to this whole conversation? Um, but if you walk in the room, usually if I'll, I'm using a medical scribe, I'll walk in and I'll say, you know, hey, this is my friend Christopher. He's going to be doing all my documentation for me so that I get to listen to you and take really good care of you. Um, and if you do that, I've, I've run into very few situations where a patient isn't comfortable with that. What about productivity? Because if this just becomes an expense for a doctor, then why would they use a medical scribe? But uh, one of the selling points for the entire medical scribe industry is that it increases a doctor's productivity. How does that, how does that come about? It's really on that time savings and documentation. So if a doctor, say they're using transcription uh, and they see 30 patients in a day, 
Um, if they if they spend four or five minutes per patient, um, you know, if it's let's say they're pretty pretty fast, so it's only four minutes per patient, and they see thirty patients, that's one hundred and twenty minutes that they spent dictating that day's clinic. And they might do it between patients. They might do it after clinic. Most are going to do it after clinic or on their weekends. And so what we save is all that time because when they leave that patient room, they're done with the documentation. It's really going to take them 15, 20 seconds to read over the note the next day to make sure it's okay. Um, so that's the big time savings. And then, you know, we tell doctors, we're going to save you two hours a day and then you do whatever you want with it. If you want to see more patients, see more patients. It's not hard to do. If you want to just go home and see your family, just do that. But yeah, that's exactly right. We we can definitely increase productivity just because of the time savings. Now, are, do you foresee that medical scribes will be replacing transcriptionists in, in private practices? I do think so. You know, the transcription market continues to shrink. Uh, you know, it speech recognition, lots of hospitals are pushing everybody to speech recognition because they see it as cheaper. As long as you don't think that doctor's time is valuable, then that's that makes sense. Um, but private practice, you know, the doctors understand that they need to they need to see patients to pay the bills and and so medical scribes really make sense for private practice, um, for quality of life and then for that productivity. And so I, I think the biggest barrier for medical scribes really is finding them and training them and then keeping them. And if you can figure out how to get rid of all those headaches, then I think medical scribes will be pretty ubiquitous. You said earlier that there right now there's no certification for medical scribes do you foresee that happening and and who would who would be the governing body for medical scribes uh i do foresee that happening um i think that there will probably be some governmental oversight at some point um there is a a medical scribe association that was started by scribe america uh being the largest kind of scribe provider and there are a few other scribe companies that are part of that association and they have a certification um and so i imagine something like that will become part of what somebody needs to do to be a medical scribe um we we put our scribes through a very long uh training process takes about three months um and takes hundreds of charts before we release them and and let them work independently with a provider um so but yeah i think that that's probably the organization that will end up being the certifying organization now do your scribes uh at your company iScribes, uh does one scribe work with just one doctor or is it kind of a pool thing that uh as as the uh recordings come in just whoever is available starts working on it we have our scribes stay with the same doctor it's usually two or three scribes so we have redundancy in case somebody's sick or somebody has an emergency sure but uh yeah we try to keep the same scribe with the same doctor they build that rapport that trust um even though our scribes are remote they still build these relationships with the scribes where the doctor and the scribe are emailing each other and communicating and having phone calls and text messages. And they really become a part of the patient care team. So we try to keep it as 
as unified as possible. And you mentioned that you have a, a HIPAA compliant cloud uh, that you work from, but are there any other HIPAA considerations with using a, a medical scribe? You know, the the biggest HIPAA considerations are the ones that you always have to worry about. You know, uh, you have to keep them trained. They have to have their yearly training. They have to have encrypted connections end-to-end, um, just kind of all the same things you'd normally worry about with HIPAA. There's not really anything out of the ordinary for scribes. All right, Dr. Jared Pello a physician and owner of iScribes of Durham, North Carolina. Anything that uh, we haven't covered that, that you think is important for our audience to know about medical scribes? Um, the only thing that I would, uh, the last thing I would say for uh, pain management physicians and iScribes in particular is that currently we do mostly orthopedics. We do some pain uh, management with that are associated with orthopedics. And the main reason when we started the company, we wanted to just be the software between scribe companies and doctors. And when we did our first partnership, the quality was terrible. And we decided that we had to own the scribe side of things as well. And when we did that, we decided we had to focus on one specialty to start. And we had, our first customer was orthopedics, so we decided to stick with that. We do have a few PMR uh, physicians that use us, and we don't have any anesthesiologists yet. But pain is something that we are going to be growing into in, in the next year or so. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Pello, for talking with us here on the ACIP podcast. Thanks a lot, Tom. Thanks for having me. It's time for the news segment of the podcast where we take a look at pain news that you might have missed. The cardiac risks of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, commonly called NSAIDs, are well known and have been for some time. But there is an extensive list of NSAIDs, and which ones have the greatest cardiac risk has never been determined. Until now. A study published in the British Medical Journal lists the seven NSAIDs with the most cardiac risk. Those NSAIDs are diclofenac, ibuprofen, indomethacin, ketorolac, naproxen, nemesulide, and peroxicam. Now, if you are not familiar with nemesulide, it's probably because it is not approved for use here in the United States. They also found that two selective COX-2 inhibitors are also associated with a higher risk of heart failure. It's really no surprise. Those two are etorococcib and rofecoxib. Now, neither of those COX-2 drugs are approved here in the United States. You may remember rofecoxib as the brand name Viox. And currently, the only COX-2 drug approved for use in the U.S. is celecoxib, which is better known through its brand name, Celebrex. This observational study looked at 10 million medical records of NSAID users in Germany, Great Britain, the Netherlands, and Italy. They found over 92,000 hospital admissions for heart failure and cross-referenced them with the drugs that these patients were taking. Now, why NSAIDs are associated with cardiac risk is undetermined. However, a recent study at the University of California, Davis, discovered that NSAIDs 
reduce cardiac cell activity and lead to cell death. Well, does taking acetaminophen during pregnancy have an effect on a child's behavior? A study published in JAMA Pediatrics says yes. Previous research suggests that women who use acetaminophen when pregnant risk abnormal neural development in their fetus. A prospective cohort of nearly 8,000 mothers were studied. According to the article's abstract, quote, children exposed to acetaminophen prenatally are at increased risk of multiple behavioral difficulties. Now, while on the subject of fetal development, researchers are starting to ask whether cannabis has an effect on human embryo development. This is a growing concern as marijuana continues to be legalized across the country for both medicinal and recreational uses. Right now, there are few human studies looking at this, so researchers at Georgetown University Medical Center looked at animal research, and what they found concerns them. G. Ian Gallicano, Ph.D., is the study's lead investigator and an associate professor of biochemistry and molecular and cellular biology at Georgetown. According to Dr. Gallicano, quote, THC and other chemicals alter molecular pathways that shouldn't be disrupted during development of a fetus. Now, previous human research, though quite limited, has shown that using marijuana in early pregnancy is associated with the same type of risks as tobacco. Those risks include miscarriage, birth defects, and developmental delays. Now, among the researchers' concerns is the finding that THC and cannabinoids interfere with vitamin B9, or folic acid. Their findings were published in Biomed Central Pharmacology and Toxicology. The production of opioids in the United States will be cut by 25% in 2017. That is the mandate of the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA. Production of hydrocodone will be hit the hardest. It will see a reduction of 34%, according to a press release from the DEA. The DEA justifies the directive because prescriptions have decreased while illegal consumption has risen. A group of Democratic senators sent the DEA a letter earlier this year pushing for opioid quotas to be reduced. Those senators were Dick Durbin of Illinois, Sherrod Brown of Ohio, Edward Markey of Massachusetts, Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, and Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Independent Senator Angus King of Maine also signed the letter. Well, prescription drug monitoring programs have been shown to work well, but only if providers actually use them. That seems to be a problem in Ohio, where an audit by the state's pharmacy board found that 12,000 physicians in the Buckeye State are not using the state's PDMP correctly, or are not even registered on the program's website. That is about one-third of Ohio physicians. The audit also discovered the following. The top 25 physicians on the list did not run the required report on a total of 7,500 patients. And the top prescriber prescribed opioids to 705 patients in a single month without running a single check. And finally, a new prophylactic treatment for migraine is underway and the development is turning into a horse race to see who can bring it to market first. Four drug companies, Amgen, Eli Lilly, T. 
Sativa Pharmaceuticals and Alder Biopharmaceuticals are in clinical trials of a drug that blocks calcitonin gene-related peptide, or CGRP. A CGRP plays a key role in cranial blood vessel dilation. It has been shown that CGRP levels shoot up when a migraine attack occurs and then drop back to normal levels when the attack is over. The drug these companies have developed is an antibody that binds to the CGRP molecule, thus blocking the molecule's activity. In mid-stage clinical trials, all four companies are seeing their study participants have their headache days cut in half. The Migraine Research Foundation estimates that 113 million workdays are lost to migraines, costing $13 billion. Now, when this drug makes it to market, it is expected to be an injection that will be administered either monthly or quarterly. The ACIP podcast is sponsored by Boston Scientific. In a registry of 800 patients, 72% of patients used multiple waveforms when given the option. Boston Scientific's Precision Spectra SCS system offers customized pain relief, delivering multiple waveforms to a precise neural target. You want options? Boston Scientific delivers. The ACIP podcast is also sponsored by Medtronic, your partner in personalized pain solutions for patients with musculoskeletal pain, cancer pain, severe spasticity, or chronic pain. To learn more about Medtronic Solutions, call 888-638-7627 or visit back.com. I have a quick reminder about ASIP's annual meeting for 2017. We'll be in Las Vegas at Caesars Palace. The dates are April 20th through the 22nd. Now, once again, we are putting together a world-class lineup of speakers. And, of course, the annual meeting is also a great way to receive a number of CMEs in just a couple of days. I'll have more details on next year's annual meeting in future podcasts. And you can also find out the latest information on the annual meeting on our website, which is, of course, ASIP, A-S-I-P-P dot O-R-G. The ASIP podcast is sponsored in part by Stimwave, maker of the Freedom Spinal Cord Stimulation System. Find out more about the Freedom Spinal Cord System at www.stimwave.com. And by St. Jude Medical, makers of spinal cord stimulation and radiofrequency therapy products. Visit them at professional.sjm.com. Well, wrapping things up on this podcast, I will paraphrase Hamlet. To shave or not to shave? That is the question. Research published in the Journal of Evolutionary Biology reports that women think a little scruffiness is attractive in men. The researchers used computer software to give varying degrees of facial hair to pictures of men. They also manipulated the pictures to make the men look either more masculine or more feminine. And when the faces were clean-shaven, women preferred the regular pictures of men over the pictures that had been manipulated to be masculine or more feminine. When asked about the men's suitability as a mate, those with full beards were deemed more attractive for long-term relationships while stubble received the highest ratings for short-term relationships. 
Stubble was also judged by the women to be the most attractive overall. So I guess the Don Johnson Miami Vice look from the 1980s is still alive and well. Gentlemen, keep this in mind the next time you reach for that razor in the morning. Well, that's it for this edition of the ASIP Podcast. Thank you again to Dr. Jared Pello of iScribes for being our guest. When you get a chance, send me an email. Very simple email address, tom, T-O-M, at A-S-I-P-P dot O-R-G. Thank you for listening, and please join me again next month for another ASIP Podcast. <laughs>